Um, so we're going to start with um, some background in Book of Acts, chapter 17, and then look at the first chapter of First Thessalonians. So Acts chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men! who have turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Chapter 1 of First um, Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we not, need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is God's words to us today. I'm going to start with this question. How do you thank someone, how do you encourage and praise someone without giving them an absolutely massive head and a huge ego? I mean, I have this problem, uh, except on the receiving end, my head is so big that it probably doesn't fit in most hats. Um, I used to hate it when people say, wow, Jordan, you're so good at sport, or wow, Jordan, you're so smart, or... Golly, Jordan, you're just so good-looking. You know, if I had a star every time uh, you crossed my mind, I'd have a whole galaxy. I, I hated this. Um, because it would feed my big head, it would make me think I'm great, and really most of those things don't come from me and they're not in my control. Um, thanks, Mom and Dad, for the good looks. Um, but here in our passage today, Paul demonstrates exactly how to do it well by thanking the right person. Paul thanks God instead. 
So if I were to sum up 1 Thessalonians um, in one simple statement, it would be this. Thank God for genuine Christians. Thank God for genuine Christians who the gospel has come into and the gospel goes out from. I'll repeat it. So if that's all you hear this morning and you fall asleep and you remember nothing else, I'll be happy uh, because I'm sure you'll be able to draw a ton of applications from this. Thank God for genuine Christians who the gospel comes into and the gospel goes out to. Out from, sorry. All right. Um, after my last sermon, the whole staff team got together. Uh, they sat me down and they gave me some feedback. Um, they said I got one thing wrong. Um, actually, a few things wrong. But one of the things that they said was I got wrong basically the whole delivery of it. Um, as I was preaching, I was preaching with a smile on my face, I was being really cheerful as I was talking about people dying and people getting spited down by God. Um, it didn't quite match the tone of the passage, but this time um, I think I can deliver it in a bit more of a natural way uh, because in this passage we can feel just how thankful and cheerful Paul is. It's one of those rare books in the Bible where he isn't slamming the people over a set of issues. Thankfulness pours out of every page here. Uh, and so we start this chapter um, in verse 1. Let's read. Uh, Paul, Silvanus, uh, which is another name of si- for Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, now let's stop there. Who are the Thessalonians? Uh, well, we've actually been given the backstory of them uh, in Paul's fruitful visit to the highly idolatrous, richly privileged city of Thessalonica. We've been given the backstory in Acts chapter 17, which Andrew just read out for us. Uh, So turn there if you want. I'm going to pull out a bunch of key events from there. Um, In verses 1 to 3, Paul arrives there and he reasons with them for three Sabbath days, which for a Jew would be three Saturdays. Paul reasons with them from the scriptures that Jesus is a Christ, that he's God's king. His three weeks resulted in a huge initial wave of people being converted, uh, of Jewish and Greek people. Um, But then opposition comes in verse 5. The Jews get out their pitchforks and torches, and they riot in the streets, doing their best impression of uh, English soccer fans after losing last year's European Soccer Cup against Italy. And this forces forces Paul and Silas to get get out of there ASAP. The Jews chase Paul and co. um, out of the town and through another couple of towns until he ends up in Athens a few months later. And at some point in time, Paul, with great concern for this newborn church in Thessalonica, sends Timothy to update him on what happened. He knows he's left them in a sorry state. Opponents are at their throats for tearing apart the social, political, and religious fabric of their their town. And he's only had three weeks to take them through a crash course in Christianity Explained. Uh, But what Timothy has to report back is good news about the genuineness of their faith. And because of that, Paul is thrilled. He wishes that he could see them in person, but he can't. And so he writes this letter to say, you guys have started really well in the faith. Continue with it. Stand firm in that. And every page is overflowing with thankfulness to God. We see that in the opening statement, which I believe is a key to the rest of the passage, and I believe 
the rest of the passage hangs off. So let's read verse 2. We give, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Did you notice who God, uh, Paul is thankful for there? Notice that Paul is not thanking the Thessalonians. He's writing to them. He's not writing to them to say that they're amazing or that they're the bee's knees or saying that they're great. He actually thanks God. Uh, and isn't that strange? I mean, uh, it's the Thessalonians who are the ones that are putting in the effort and the hard work, right? Shouldn't Paul be thanking them? It'd be like walking into a room uh, with Randy and Steve. Uh, and Randy has led us in prayer fantastically. And I say, thanks, Steve, for that prayer. <laughs> uh, you would think, hang on, that, that doesn't make sense. Um, Randy's the one who put in the hard work. But that is, unless you know, that Steve was the one who wrote the prayer. He's the one who chose Randy to pray it. And he uh, was the one who saw through that Randy actually finished it and did it. Uh, which is why Paul writes in verse 4, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, I know this doctrine of election uh, or God choosing people uh, usually sends Bible study leaders running to the hills, as Iggy would say last week. But throughout the New Testament and right here, Paul actually uses this doctrine of election as one of the biggest sources of comfort assurance, empowerment, and reasons to thank God. Before the dawn of time, before the foundation of the world, God shows you, Christian, to be saved because he loves you. And if you are a Christian, God is behind the gospel coming to you and the gospel going out from you. And God is the one to be thankful, uh, thanked because of it. And thank God when you see it in yourself and when you see it in others. I'm going to borrow from John Piper a bit um, here and say that Paul can thank God because God is the decisive cause for all of these things uh, happening. And isn't that an encouragement? Because if being saved were up to me, uh, if becoming like Jesus was like me, was just up to me, I'd have no comfort, because I know how weak I am. So how is it that Paul can say that he knows that the Thessalonians have been chosen by God? It's because when the gospel comes into a community or a person, it becomes unmissable. So he highlights eight key attributes of the Thessalonians, which demonstrates that God is at work in their lives. Um, and let's look at it now. Uh, the first thing that Paul is thanking God for in this passage is the big three. And no, I'm not talking about Tim Duncan, Manu Ginobili, and Tony Parker of the Spurs that dominated the NBA. In verse 3, we see two sets of three. The first triplet, faith, love, and hope. The trinity of classic Christian virtues. First and foremost is faith. Faith is trusting in Jesus alone and not yourself. It's believing in your heart that he's the one who saves, he's the one who forgives and justifies through his death and resurrection, and he reigns now as Lord of everything. It says, I trust you with my life. I trust you with my 
everything. Uh, and it's this faith that connects us uh, to the saving work of God. Second of these three, love. A love of God because they know Jesus, the Son of God. They see him on the cross, stripped, bleeding, suffocating, and dying for him. And they know the pain of the Father as he pours out his wrath uh, for us, for our sins, on his Son. And the last set of three, uh, this three, is hope. Hope is a confidence concerning the future. Uh, Christian hope is different to our culture's way of thinking of hope because our society treats hope as something that's more of a wish, uh, something that you cross your fingers for because you're not sure it's going to happen. Like, I hope the Broncos are going to win next year's NRL Premiership. Uh, But Christian hope is rock solid and sure. It's confident in the future, and it's a future tense of faith. Faith, love, and hope. These three characteristics, they're core to the Christian faith, and they're so great that it makes you want to name your kids after them. Um, So have you got these three? And how do people know that you have these things? How can Paul, Silas, and Timothy say a resounding, we know you have it, to attributes that are invisible to the naked eye, things that are um, supposed to be within a person? Paul can know that they have it, and Paul can thank God that they have it because of the big three that the passage is truly emphasizing. Let's read again verse 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. People usually focus on faith, love, and hope because as the key markers of faith, but notice the precursors there. Work, labor, and steadfastness. Faith, love, and hope are inner affections that are invisible to the eye. But this is how Paul and co. can know that they have it. Because these invisible attributes from within uh, necessarily produce things that go out and are visible. Uh, People say, all there is to faith is to believe in your heart and trust. You don't need to do anything. No, faith requires Work. It will flow out in action. Uh, People say, all there is to love is that it's this feeling that you get in your heart. It's an emotion. Uh, And love comes easy when you find it. No, love is difficult and strenuous and exhausting. It takes labor. And people say, all there is, is to hope is that it's a wish or a dream. It's fleeting. You can want it, but you can't be certain that you're going to get it. And Paul would say, no, hope is confident and firm and persevering, and it takes steadfastness. Um, Please don't hear me wrong uh, in saying that uh, being saved by God is in any sense based on works, uh, or even that that doing good works earns you extra brownie points before God, but rather genuine and recognizable faith will necessarily produce fruits. And I want to get under people's skin a little bit here. You can't be a Sunday Christian. 
What I mean by that is that you can't just come to church on Sundays and get marked off on God's roll call uh, and expect everything to be good. A genuine life in Christ will necessarily produce good works and genuine change. Uh, faith and love will produce work and labor, and the steadfastness of hope is the perseverance of these things. Um, and this work that Paul is talking about, I don't think he's uh, referring to manual labor. Uh, the good works, it's the good works that we're going to look at in the rest of this, uh, this passage. So how does Paul know that they are chosen by God and that they're one of God's people? Uh, one of the reasons is in verse 5. Uh, because our, holy, our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Or to put it another way, I'm going to borrow from Steve's sermon a little bit from next, for next week. Uh, a quote from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. You accepted it not as the word of God, uh, not, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. So the gospel has come into them. They've received it as the word of God and not as men. They've received it with conviction. Um, I'm at the start of my preaching journey. Um, I don't quite know how to use uh, words good. Um, and I'm not sure if I ever will. My brain really only functions in numbers and problem solving in Microsoft Excel <laughs> um, from my previous life of accounting. Uh, I don't know how to so clearly explain a biblical text like Ben does or engross people in stories like Steve. Uh, in all honesty, I can't even speak as well as most of my friends. But my hope is that you receive the sermon today not as the word of man, not as the word of me, uh, but as the word of God. I don't want to convince you with fancy rhetoric. Um, I want you to receive the word of God, because the Holy Spirit is working powerfully to convict you. And that's why I prayed at the start, and as I've been preparing, uh, that you hear not me speaking, but the word of God. And following from that, uh, that your heart, that your heart be stirred to deep belief that this is true, and that you'll want to believe it and live it out. And especially if you're not a Christian, and you're here with us and hearing this. Bring us back to our main point. If it's God's spirit causing people to accept God's word with deep conviction, isn't God to be thanked for all of this? Uh, the fourth marker that lets Paul know that the Thessalonians are chosen and loved by God is there in verse 6. Let me paraphrase it. The gospel came into them and they accepted it with the joy of the Holy Spirit in affliction. This gospel is clearly not the prosperity gospel because it doesn't come with health, wealth, and success. But instead it comes with affliction. They're taking on hostility from their friends, their family, their co-workers, they're turning from the, the town's idols and turning to serve God. I know there's people here who have had the same case happen to them as well. But despite the affliction, what is overflowing with the Thessalonians here is joy. 
Paul sees the same Holy Spirit that caused him to receive the word with conviction in verse 5, working here to produce something crazy. That their joy in Jesus is so great, he is more precious to them than life itself, and more precious to them than the avoidance of affliction. He's seeing all of these things happen, and he can only think one thing to himself. That this is the power of the Holy Spirit working in them. God is so clearly working in the Thessalonians. And so he thanks God for it. Have you seen people who put in the hard yards for the gospel with a smile on their faces? People who suffer so much for being outcast with their depression or anxiety. Bodies that don't work like they're supposed to. Relationships that are so painful and broken and people have their hearts shattered because of it. Yet these people still have a deep faith, love and trust in God. It's nothing more encouraging. You've seen people who God has worked in in this way. Thank God for them. Um, I got the chance to speak to Auntie Mandy last week at church camp. Uh, she's been battling with cancer for the past few years, and it's so hard. But as I talked to her, I could just tell that her, her treasure is Jesus, and he's his, her joy. And she's overflowing with faith and love and hope in him. Uh, so I thank God for Auntie Mandy uh, and how uh, God is working in her. Suffering in our faith is something to be expected. And in verse 6, Paul says that the Thessalonians become genuine imitations of both himself and the Lord Jesus, who suffered with joy. Uh, but it doesn't stop with them becoming imitators. The fifth marker that God has chosen them uh, is that they go from being from imitators to being examples so that others can be imitators of them uh, and Paul and Jesus. Uh, it's in there in the transition between verse 6 and 7 where the passage shifts from how the Thessalonians receive the gospel and Paul and Silas to how it goes out from them. Before this, we see how the gospel has come into them. Through Paul's preaching that was received with faith, love and hope, conviction, joy, uh, and, jo and joy and suffering. But we see that it doesn't stay there. It doesn't stay on the inside. It's the same thing that we've been talking about all so far. The gospel coming into someone will necessarily lead it to, to change. And it will necessarily lead, to, necessarily lead to the gospel going out of people. So how does this example of the Thessalonians go out? Uh, we'll see it in the next point. Paul says two things spread from them. Uh, and no, it wasn't sickness like us in church, at church camp last week. Uh, look with me at verse 8. Not only has the word of the Lord uh, sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Archaea, but your Faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we not, need not say anything. The gospel has gone out from them, and their faith has gone out from them. 
So much so that Paul says that we don't have to do anything. I don't need to do any evangelism. Why? Because these guys have already done it. They have told people about Jesus and what he's done in their lives. They're telling people with extreme joy that Jesus is Lord. He's the king who conquered sin and death. And because of that, they're saved. They're completely saved from the coming wrath and judgment from God. But not only that, the massive turnaround in their lives validated what they were saying. It was common knowledge to everyone what the Thessalonians believed in because they spoke it and because they lived it out. Their words and their lives matched up. Um, now, I can think of two dangers when it comes to evangelism. The first one is living out your faith, but the gospel isn't going out. Some people call it lifestyle evangelism. And the thought is that by living a good life in front of people, um, that's all you need to do. Uh, but actually, that's not good enough. People need to hear the verbal sharing of the Word of God. They need to hear the good news of the gospel as a reason. So when was the last time that you verbally shared the Word of God with someone who wasn't a Christian? The second danger uh, is if you're preaching the gospel but not living out your faith. Um, I won't go into too much more detail about this, but it's everything that you're hearing in the sermon. Uh, that's what it means to live out your faith. So can people notice that you're different? That you speak the word of God and that you live it out. Can your friends at uni or your co-workers at work pick out that you're a Christian? Or do you look like everyone else? Uh, now we're in, in the home stretch. Just two more marks of how Paul knows that God has chosen the Thessalonians to go. Uh, because the word of God has gone out everywhere, people are now reporting back to Paul these things in verses 9 and 10. That the Thessalonians turn from idols to God and wait. Let's start with turning from idols to God. In Thessalonica, uh, this was huge. They made a clean break with idolatry in a city that had 25 people. Uh, 25 different temples <laughs> rocking the social fabric of the town to the core. Uh, idol worship was what everyone was doing. Uh, and the logic behind that is that they've got a god or they've got an idol uh, for good crops, uh, idol for fertility, an idol for family, a family uh, an idol for sex. Uh, and to turn away from these idols means that th these gods are going to be angry and that your town is going to get destroyed by them. And that's probably one of the reasons why they were afflicted back in verse 6. Uh, but the Thessalonians did just this. They turned, turned their back on idols. They said they're false, that they're dead, and they're fake gods. It means that they had to say no to all those things. And they didn't just do that. They turned to something. They turned to the true and living God to rule their life. You might think, oh, we don't have uh, these types of idols in our society. I don't see people bowing down to wooden statues. Uh, but in essence, if we look a little bit harder, we'll see them. We've got the same idols in our society. We elevate money, 
sex, work, love, and power, and we let them rule over our lives. We look to those things for meaning and security. And I even want to challenge our culture's thinking that says that we can pick and choose to add the things that we like, like a shopping cart. So it's like you're going down uh, the shopping aisle and you go, ooh, a bit of security from money, I don't mind that. Or, hmm, the fulfillment I get from work, I'll invest a bit of time in that as well. And, oh, the get out of death free card from Christianity, I want some of that, so I'll put a little bit of time in that as well. Uh, no, the Thessalonians didn't just add Jesus to their lives. They, just, they didn't just make him one God amongst many. They turned their back on idols to serve God. And they said no to all these other things, uh, which was just as radical to live out in their society as it is ours. Um, on a slightly different vein, everyone is happy when Christianity uh, when Christians say, we're just one way amongst many. But culture is slowly waking up to the fact that Christians turn from everything else to live for the one true and living God. Uh, if you've been following the news this week, uh, Andrew Thornburn was appointed uh, the prestigious role of CEO of Essendon Football Club, um, Essendon, which is AFL, by the way. Um, but he, he's been forced to step down because he's a Christian. And popular Australian breakfast TV has slammed uh, Andrew, they've slammed his pastor for his views. Uh, and people are, are talking down Christians. And this is the current social climate that we live in. It's tough. But I hope this last attribute spurs us on to persevere. The last thing that Paul says is that they become waiters. Uh, in verse 10, they become people who wait for Jesus' return. People who wait for Jesus to come again a second time. Jesus who was raised from the dead and is coming again a second time to shield us from the wrath of God on that day of judgment. And people can see that these Christians live not for this life, but for that life to come. They can see the steadfastness of hope that they have. Um, and if you think about it, um, it's a bit of a strange tension there. You, when you think of waiting, I think of myself back in my old work, twiddling my thumbs, staring at the clock, waiting for 5 p.m. to come so I could pack up my bags and leave. Um, but that doesn't quite make sense with what we've heard in verse 9, uh, in that they serve and they labor and they work. So we have to think about this waiting not as a type of waiting that distracts people from service, but rather fuels and empowers us to live for God. Because we know that Jesus is coming, what we do in this life matters. It makes, it, makes a difference. Uh, and all of this, I know I'm starting to sound a bit like a broken record now, but all of this Paul thanks God for. Uh, at the start, I asked the question, how can you thank someone without being unhelpful and giving them a huge head? Paul does it by thanking God 
for genuine Christians. For being the decisive cause for bringing the gospel into someone's life and bringing the gospel out from someone's life. So take a second to to pause and think. When was the last time you honestly stopped to thank God for the work that he's done in your life and in someone else's life? Is that a regular habit for you to do? Uh, And if it isn't, uh, you can start with the people closest to you and you can work outwards. I also want to ask, is the biggest source of your gratitude right now Um, for yourself and for others, things of this world? Are you most thankful for your health, your job, your marriage, your relationship, or that you live in Australia? Or that you and and the people around you have been brought to new life in Jesus Christ to enjoy him forever and that God is showing it to everyone in your lives? My hope is that we would become people whose prayers, whose words, and life overflows with thankfulness to God for these things. Uh, When we talked about thankfulness last week at church camp, um, a few people mentioned gratitude journals. It's basically when you write down, at the end of the day, a couple of things that you're thankful for. Um, And I say, forget about gratitude journals. You can just totally skip that. Uh, Paul actually writes to them, and Paul actually writes to the Thessalonians, I thank God for you and the work that he's doing in you. Do you know someone who's an example of faith that has encouraged you? That's great. Write them a letter of gratitude. It doesn't need to be longer than a page, and it doesn't need to rival Paul and his five chapters long letter. Just say I thank God for you. This is what your words and actions did for me. This is how it made me feel. This is what it meant to me. You can thank God for all the concrete evidences that he has worked in someone's life and how their their life has touched the lives of others. Uh, If they don't live near you, maybe they live in a different country, uh, send them, text them to arrange them, uh, arrange a video call. Uh, Be vague about why, and on the call you can read them the letter. Uh, Bring tissues, there might be tears. Uh, Maybe writing a letter is too long, uh, but we have the modern day letter. We have Facebook Messenger, we have WhatsApp, Instagram, WeChat. So I, I encourage you after this sermon, in the discussion time, to send a short text to someone who you've seen God at work in and thank God for them. Uh, Those of us who were at church camp last week heard a few stories, um, stories of grace, of how God has worked in people's lives. They're called stories of grace because it's God who's worked in people. There's many more stories of grace out there and the people around you um, and there's many poor people to thank God for. Second application point. Who feels like they don't match up to this example that the Thessalonians give out? Or even to the other Christians around you? When you honestly consider your own life for these signs of life, do you see conviction, joy and suffering? 
evangelism, turning from idols to God and waiting in your life. I want to say to you, the first step isn't to do more. Remember that these steadfast works and labor, they come out of what's inside. The outflow of faith, love, and hope from within. So throw yourself back on Jesus in faith, knowing that you are incredibly loved by him, and even chosen by him. And he has both the power and the will to finish what he started in you. The first step for you isn't to try harder. It's a work of God to produce these things. So pray. Pray that God will work in your life and your heart. And when you see yourself wrestling uh, with living this life um, and all the things that we've talked about today, but you see yourself continually stepping up, give thanks to God. And when you see that in others, give thanks to God for them. Uh, And now lastly, if you're someone who isn't a Christian uh, and here with us today, can I just say, uh, I thank God for you. I thank God that he's brought you here and that you're even considering checking out Christianity. That's a huge step. My encouragement to you would be to see the genuine Christians around you, whoever it is in your life, and I hope that you see them and see that there's something different about them. They work and they love and they don't live for the things that most people do. And they've got joy in the worst of times. They might not be perfect, but I want you to see that Jesus Christ is working powerfully in them. And he's the sender of their life. And that he's returning one day to deliver them from the wrath to come. Jesus is the one who they live such different lives for. So if that's you and you're here today, um, I want you to take a moment to consider this Jesus for yourself. If you're here today and you've heard this message as the word of God, not as the word of me, if you see Jesus as the true and living God and you want him to come into your life and give you new life, and you want to be assured that your sins are dealt with, I urge you not to leave today without making that step of asking God to give you this new life through Jesus Christ. Uh, If that's you today, uh, I'm going to pray now, uh, and I'm going to pray in first person so you can ask God of these same things. Feel free to, to say the same things in your head and in your own heart. I'm going to pray those things, and after that, I'm going to pray for the Christians among us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know I don't deserve you, and I am guilty of not following you, and I've served dead idols my whole life. God, I don't want to rebel against you any longer. Help me to turn my heart to you today to serve you, the true and living God who forgives sins. Please give me new life through your son, Jesus Christ. And for the Christians here, uh, thank you for them. 
you have worked in each and every one of them and continue to work. What a blessing that is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.